I just wanted to welcome Will and Louis van der Hart this morning. We're so excited they're here. They're a great team. Um, Will is founder of Mind and Soul Charity, which works with uh, mental health issues. And he's also the author of The Worry Book, The Stuff of Life, The True to Your Self-Esteem Course. And um, with Louis, his wife, um, who's journalist and writer as well, they've co-authored the pregnancy book. And I believe there's another book that's just been printed and soon to come out um, about guilt. So they are amazing. Please welcome Will. Great. I'm just going to pull this down so then I've got a bit of a, a backdrop that doesn't, then I'm not, you can see my slides a bit better. Great to see you everyone. Thanks so much for being here today. Um, really pray that we have a fantastic time together. Um, I know that I'm going to be shooting through things relatively quickly, um, but I, 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 I want to um, encourage you that there's a lot more support to what I say online. If you just go to mindandsoul.info, we've got talks and resources there for you, and about a million and a half people use that material every year um, to help them with these kind of uh, issues. We've got quite a wide range of ladies in the house tonight, which is, uh, which is great, but uh, quite a diverse uh, range of um, maybe some of you are grandparents, maybe some of you are not yet parents, maybe some of you are married, maybe some of you are unmarried, maybe some of you uh, come from large families or small families. I hope that what I say today will be uh, relevant uh, to you uh, in your setting. I'll try and keep it culturally relatively neutral uh, so you can apply it to your life situation. Um, I, I'm a, a vicar uh, as well, and um, I'm, I'm aware that not everyone in, in this room has a Christian faith. I will make some reference to the Christian faith later on in my talk. I hope you find that helpful, and again, contextualize that for your circumstances. Um, and uh, we're going to start off this morning by looking at this issue of perfectionism, and I'm actually asking the question, how can we undo perfectionism uh, in our lives? And I guess um, this might seem like a slightly strange talk to many of you, because uh, quite a few of you might have been encouraged over the years that the one bad thing that you can really be proudly is to be a perfectionist. Um, and uh, many, many people on their uh, job applications write, uh, when it says, um, you know, what are your main strengths? You put down a uh, bold, confident, uh, well-educated, very equipped, uh, very charming, perfect for this role, in fact. And then when it says, uh, put down your weaknesses, uh, then most people write, a bit of a perfectionist. Because we all know that, sort of in, in some sort of strangely inverted way, that the boss is going to read that and go, ah, that's a... St- that's a terrible weakness to have. A perfectionist, goodness, can imagine that. There'll be people who work extremely hard, uh, people who stay late in the office, people whose work hasn't, haven't got any um, faults or any problems. So actually, I rather like a bad perfectionist. Uh, that's a, that's a, a real blessing. And, and, and I want to kind of encourage you too to recognize that you are products of a culture which actually promotes perfectionism. And, and, and you probably have bought into a myth that we need to attain to perfectionism. Uh, and there are various reasons for that, that which we'll undo uh, later on. But, but the whole principle of perfectionism is, is actually um, uh, an undermining, uh, psychologically uh, destructive and unhelpful principle. And yet it's one that is promoted and propagated in the world in which we live. And that's why we're starting with this idea. Now many of you will be dealing with perfectionism of different types. And, and if you think you're one of these people who's sitting here right now and just going, I'm just so not a perfectionist, so this just doesn't relate to me, you're probably a perfectionist. Because most perfectionists are terribly self-deprecating. So uh, perfectionists believe that they are a terrible mess, yet they try ever so hard to make everything look like it's fantastic and it's all sorted out. 
So perfectionists aren't the people who believe themselves to be perfect. Far from it. Perfectionists are the people who believe themselves to be far from perfect and try everything they can uh, to project a self which looks perfect. So let's ask the question, shall we, with this first slide. What is perfectionism? Well, here's a, here's a kind of uh, wikis. Don't worry about all these because I, I, will, I will pray see everything that you see on the screen. If you can't see some of this, text is small. But um, I will provide these slides for you at the end, which is a, another liberty fuel. So no perfectionist here needs to make sure that they've noted everything down that's on the screen because you will get a free copy of these PowerPoint notes for you to print off at home so you can put your notebooks down and you can just relax and not feel like you have to note everything. If you are on Twitter, you can say a few things if you'd like to, um, just using the hashtag. Um, But, so perfectionism in psychology is a personality trait characterized by a person striving for flawlessness and setting excessively high performance standards accompanied by overcritical self-evaluation and concerns regarding others' evaluation of them. And this is a whole principle. It's a, it's a life mechanism, if you like, this idea of a personality trait as a trait of the self striving for flawlessness. Now, I'm sure there's not a single woman in this room today who believes themselves to be flawless or even believes that flawlessness is something that can be attained. Um, when I was buying my wife a, 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 a ring uh, for our, um, it was actually not our, not our wedding ring, it was a sort of a celebration ring um, for our marriage. Um, you know, we, we went to Hatton Gardens, and in Hatton Gardens you can buy jewellery. Uh, it's the kind of place to go in London. And Hatton Gardens are unusual because they show you the stone and then they make the ring. And uh, very quickly, you know, you look at this grading system. And you can see all of these couples walking around looking in the windows. And you can see women's eyes just grow large. And you can see men's pockets burning. Um, you know, and, and, and everything is graded on the basis of this idea of flawlessness. And actually, every diamond is, 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 is qualified on the seas. Clarity, uh, carrot, um, I can't remember them all. Um, but there are all these, these kind of views on these different seas. And, 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 the, and the clarity or the flawlessness... It is, the, is the key grade. You know, what do you see inside? Now, I want to say to you this morning that I believe that you're all beautiful and wonderful people, and I believe you were being created by a, a loving and a wonderful God. And yet, we see in ourselves all of these flaws, so we downgrade what we see. We believe that we are flawed, and yet we're seeking flawlessness in our lives. Psychology Today said, for perfectionists, life is an endless report card of accomplishments or looks. Uh, one way, it's a one-way ticket to unhappiness. Perfection, perfectionism is typically accompanied by depression and eating disorders. Now, what, what I'm trying to do right at the very beginning of this in terms of asking what is perfectionism is, I guess, trying to re-educate you about whether perfectionism is actually good or bad. If we don't start off with the premise that perfectionism is actually deeply toxic in our lives, we will never find any liberation from it. If we hold on in our minds to the false belief that perfectionism can somehow save us, or perfectionism will somehow make our lives better, we will never be free uh, from the disease of perfectionism. My, my daughter's got a little uh, rabbit. She's starting to grow out of it now. She's, she's nearly five. Uh, she's got a rabbit. It's called Rabbity Roo. 
And uh, Rabbity Roo uh, is a toy that she was given as a baby. And it's one of the strange things in life where, where a child chooses one of many toys and makes this toy their special toy. Now, Rabbity Roo's had various incarnations. In fact, we bought two Rabbity Roo's who are identical in case we lost one. But she quickly realized that the one that really smelt bad was the real Rabbity Roo. Now, over time, Rabbity Roo has been loved so much, it's been kind of snuzzled and uh, it's been used as a tissue, uh, a handkerchief, uh, a bath cloth, all sorts of different things. Uh, at one point, actually, Rabbity was so ragged, we had to chop off the bottom of Rabbity Roo number two and sew it onto the head of Rabbity Roo number one, which caused all sorts of emotional problems for my daughter. Ultimately, it's a toy that she loves. No other child loves this toy. If if she takes this toy to school, no other child is saying, I really want Rabbity Roo. In fact, it's a bit of a biological hazard. So most other children sensibly keep their distance from Rabbity Roo. Yet yet my daughter is so attached to this toy that that it it rules her emotional world, or it has done. And, And so there's this challenge that actually everything else is on hold unless Rabbity Roo is safe. Uh, and I want to say to you this, perfectionism is a bit like Rabbity Roo. Perfectionism is something that we've grasped hold of in early childhood. It's something that's deeply toxic. It's something that is actually unhealthy for us. We become incredibly attached to it. If anyone tries to prize it out of our hands, we get deeply upset and we generally will have a tantrum. Actually, it's something that no one else really wants. But it's something that we believe that we need to keep if we're going to survive. So we're going to come into, into understanding how we can unpick uh, this model as we move forward. But I want to kind of begin just simply laying out my stool this morning and telling you that perfectionism will emotionally kill you. It's not a small thing. It's not a jokey thing. It's not something we should be writing uh, on our applications for our jobs or celebrating in our households or encouraging in our children. Uh, many of the disorders that that we deal with in our charity begin with this problem, the problem of perfectionism. And so I want to ask the question, you know, am I a perfectionist? Well, there's some criteria for perfectionism, which are kind of psychologically rooted criteria. Let me read them out to you again. Don't worry about not noting these down unless there's some specifics that you believe relate to you. You are highly conscientious and hypercritical of your mistakes. Hence, you have an extremely sharp eye towards detail. You aim to be the best in everything you do, even if it's something you're not really interested in. You spend copious amounts of time, right down to the last moment, to perfect something. You would rather sacrifice your well-being, such as sleep, eating time, etc., than let something be less than it can be. You set absolute ideas, and there is no black and white, or there, there, there is no, uh, there's no grey, there's only black and white in your estimation of things. You're your harshest critic of yourself. You would beat yourself up over the smallest thing that went wrong to the extent of being neurotic about it. And then the next slide. You mull over outcomes. If they didn't turn out as envisioned, you wonder why it wasn't a different outcome or whether you could have done anything differently to prevent it. You are defensive towards criticism and have a fear of failure because they suggest imperfection in you. You only have the end goal in mind. You don't, if you don't achieve the goal, it really does not matter what happened in the process. You have an all-or-nothing approach. If the situation does not allow you to achieve the standard or that's laid out, you abandon the task because it doesn't make sense to spend time on something uh, that you're not going to conquer. You're very conscious of any situation which might give others the perception that you're not perfect. Well, I think probably everyone in this room can relate to one of those ten criteria. 
And um, I think particularly in my mind, the final criteria, number 10, is a really significant one. We're very conscious of any situation that might give others the perception that we are not perfect. And, and I think one thing I want to state to, to particularly the Christians here today is that the church is a hotbed of perfectionism. And the Christian faith is a hotbed of perfectionism, where people talk strongly about identity ideals, such as I'm not perfect, but I'm a broken and sinful person who lives my life in Lord Jesus Christ. Actually, this becomes a perfection ideal. Uh, you know, perfectionism exchanges one set of worldly ideals for a new set of spiritual ideals. And, and, and there are very subtle ways in which these are nuanced in the churches. And as a church leader, I can tell you, the church leaders are a bit like business leaders, in the sense when people say that they're perfectionists, you have the same kind of bright idea of, oh, great, maybe you'd like to run the coffee road, I'm sure you'd be fantastic at that. <laughs> we need to get away from this idea, and we need to get away from the idea that our, our, our faith life, if you're a Christian here today, somehow means that you are not subject to this kind of perfectionism. In fact, what St. Paul uh, wrote to uh, the, the, the New Testament churches, he wrote ideas about perfectionism. You know, he, he wrote challenges about spiritual ideals, and there were groups who were travelling around um, in the first century called the Gnostics, uh, who were very keen on um, perfectionism. You know, they believed stra- very strongly in, in living a perfect life and being seen to live that way. Jesus Christ himself spent a long time talking to Pharisaical leaders who believed very much in spiritual perfection demonstrated to uh, the people of the time, but actually it wasn't really felt in their hearts. So, there's a little bit of a kind of faith outline to you. I'd love it if everyone here who really generally was a perfectionist was able at this stage of this talk to acknowledge two things. One, perfectionism isn't good for me. And two, I am a perfectionist. Okay, because if we can start there, we've done an awful lot already today. You know, if we can acknowledge to ourselves, yeah, that's probably a problem for me, and yeah, I recognize that actually this isn't a good problem to have, then we can begin to make some changes. But, but as soon as I've said that to you, several of you will already be feeling quite anxious. Hold on, we're doing another talk this morning about worry and anxiety, so we can, we can help you with that problem. So just hold on to your anxiety for a moment. But, but I, want you to, I want you to think for a minute about this idea. That, that, that imagine uh, there was a, 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 you know, a bear burst into the room right now, a great big angry looking bear. Now uh, immediately we would uh, be terrified, I hope, and we would all be making our way out of the exit extremely quickly at the other end of the room. Typically we wouldn't, we wouldn't wait around to see whether that bear was really a bear or whether it was Mike Pilavachi in a bear suit or you know, uh, whether it had real claws or whether it had you know, really sharp teeth. We would, just, we would just leave because we felt a danger was approaching. Now, I I want to suggest to you right now in this talk that some of you already feel like a bear has entered the room. Because one of the constructs that you've used to make life safe is being challenged. One of the key tools that you've used to make your life manageable is being actively challenged in this room right now. That should make you very uncomfortable. Because what I'm suggesting is that something that you've used to support yourself, to prop yourself up and to make your world safe is actually under scrutiny in a serious way. We are deconstructing something that you've used in the past and maybe you're using in the present to keep yourself emotionally alive. So you might well feel similar feelings to there being a bear in the room. What I want you to do with those feelings is just to remain where you are and just trying to relax and try and keep an open mind. 
Those of you who are really struggling with this kind of issue right now will be thinking ways in which they can undo what I've said. You'll be already thinking about ways in which perfectionism helps you and ways in which you can mitigate the things that I'm saying against your own life experience. So you'll be thinking things like, well, I don't think perfectionism is really that bad. I mean, you know, there are some good things about being a perfectionist. And actually, I can see lots of quite good outcomes about being perfectionism. And surely it's all about keeping things in balance. And actually, this is probably quite an extreme talk. And it's not really relevant to me. If you're one, can we just have a show of hands of people thinking like that already? <laughs> quite a few people. Yeah, thank you. Okay. So, the key thing is acknowledging that and staying with it. But recognizing that within you are defense mechanisms which are trained to actually attack those things that attack you first. Okay, and, and, and a challenge to perfectionism is an attack on the self in some ways. So you're primed to attack back. Just try and keep an open mind as we move through this material, and then actually you'll be able to make significant positive changes later. Recognizing that you're already in defensive mode is a good thing, because then you can mitigate defensive mode as we move on. So uh, this is, uh, this is um, Annie, Ward um, Annie Wilson-Shafe. She says that perfectionism is self-abuse of the highest order. And um, this is taking this idea a step further. But actually, perfectionism is a form of self-abuse. Now, this is a, a, abuse is a word which is obviously extremely strong. And it has all sorts of connotations for us. But um, Annie Wilson-Shafe says that perfectionism is a form of self-abuse of the highest order. Now, what she's arguing in this, uh, in this quote is that actually self-abuse is the root of many other forms of self-abuse. This form of perfectionism is a, is a, is a, is a self-abuse that leads to many other forms of self-abuse. And um, the roots of, 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 of self-abuse, and we've seen this in the work that I do, uh, issues like self-harm, uh, particularly eating disorders, anorexia nervosa and bulimia, uh, physical acts of, if you like, self-abuse often have their roots in perfectionism and ideas of perfectionism. Now, obviously, eating disorders is really quite an easy one to give you because you can see that a desire for perfection in the body leads someone to um, begin to... Yeah, reduce their eating habits or, or starve themselves or, or, or purge themselves and, and associated uh, outworking comes from this idea of perfectionism. But I would suggest to you that the psychological impact of, of perfectionism is even more hard felt. Actually, that the self-abuse that comes from perfectionism is a, is a constant internal narrative of negativity. This is like carrying around on your shoulder. You're, you, are, you are Captain you know, Peggotty Leg, and you have got a parrot on your shoulder. And this parrot whispers in your ear negative things about your performance all day long. You are not a good enough mother. You are not a good enough grandmother. You are not a good enough daughter. You are not a good enough wife. You're not a good enough carer, you're not a good enough employee, you have not achieved enough, you've not done enough, you're certainly not better than they are. And, and actually your whole internal narrative all, is all ordered around this idea of not being good enough. This is a form of self-abuse. And just be really careful here, um, Christian folk in the room, because many people have taken the voice of God and uh, manipulated that voice uh, distorted that voice and pumped that voice into the voice of the perfectionism in their own head. They've taken the language of Christian spirituality and they start talking to themselves like, of all sinners I am the greatest. And they're thinking, hold on, that's in the Bible. So there can't be anything wrong with that. Uh, they've taken ideas of, you know, the, 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 I, I, it's not me that lives, it's Christ that lives in me. I don't deserve to live because actually I'm a worm. And I'm worse than a worm. You know, I, 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 know, I know Christ died for me 
but but I'm you know I'm surprised about that. But I mean, he, you know, he certainly did to need to die for someone like me. Um, and so we've taken the language of Christian spirituality and we've pumped that into and distorted that into the language of perfectionism. It's not the language of God. So don't try and justify it to yourself as if somehow you, you know, this, is, this has its orientations in something spiritual. This is not a spiritual thing. This is not what God's saying about us or to us. Uh, I, I suggest this. If we retain the faulty belief that perfectionism is virtuous, we will be suffocated by its accusations and demands for the whole of our lives. This is, this is a statement I want you to really kind of write on your fridge or on your mirror and, and, and hold it fast. If we retain the faulty belief that perfectionism is virtuous, we will be suffocated by its accusations and demands for the whole of our lives. My grandmother was a perfectionist, and I, everyone in the family knew that. And um, they felt that because of the demands that she made about other people and the self-deprecating way in which she responded to other people. Her expectations for herself were ridiculously high, and so her expectations for everyone else were also ridiculously high. One of the terrible forms of um, what I call waterfall abuse experience in perfectionism is that children of perfectionists become perfectionists. Actually, there's a generational pattern to this in that if love has been withheld from you for the sake of perfection, and we're going to go on to that a little bit longer, a little later on, if you're unable to love yourself or be generous to yourself or accommodate your mistakes, often you pass that same premise onto your children who believe the same worldview as you do. It's another faulty worldview. It's the idea that actually if you just achieve more, you'd be a little bit more lovable. Now, Forbes magazine wrote a, a, helpful, um, a helpful report on this. And, 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 I, and I only bring this to life just because I wanted to point out the fact that actually we believe in business. And I said at the very beginning of this talk that, that actually business leaders rather like perfectionists. Real business leaders don't really like perfectionists. This is just to kind of reinforce the idea that perfectionism uh, is not a good thing. And Forbes magazine, I think this is on a, the next slide, it says perfectionism is problematic because it can lead to obsessiveness, inefficiency, and a multitude of serious mental health issues that affect attendance, performance, and morale. You'll often see a perfectionist procrastinating because she's afraid of failing before she starts. Alternatively, she may position, position herself as a martyr, the only one who cares, thinks, or works enough about getting things right. And um, I, I point this out because in my experience, there are two sorts of perfectionists. You've got the um, perfectionist who, who stalls in life, the reluctant perfectionist, I call them. The reluctant perfectionist is very unsure of themselves. And the reluctant perfectionist spends a lot of time deliberating about what they should or what they shouldn't do. Reluctant perfectionists typically are held back in life, and they're the people who at the end of life wish that they'd done life differently. They say, if only I followed my dreams, if only I hadn't played it safe, if only I hadn't always tried to do the right thing. They're reluctant perfectionists. And then you get the aggressive perfectionists, and the regressive perfectionists are people like Martha in the Bible. Uh, if, you, if, you're, if you're a Christian here today, you'll remember the story of Mary and Martha. Mary did the right thing. She relaxed. She wasn't worried about being judged. Uh, she sat at Jesus' feet and she had to listen to what he was going to say. Uh, Martha uh, was a perfectionist. She wanted to make sure that the house was right, uh, the house was tidy, the food was provided perfectly, Everyone's, uh, everyone was properly catered for. But she didn't do it with a good grace. She didn't do it because she loved it, because it brought her life. She did it because she felt she had to do it. She had to be seen to do the right thing. 
And uh, she was terribly jealous of her sister. She said, look, Jesus, you know, Mary, she's, she's just chilling out here. And I'm doing all the work. You know, what's going on? You know, what, what do you want to say to her? The, the, the voice that Jesus, um, she anticipated Jesus returning to her with was one of, you're, you're right, Martha. Your sister isn't doing anything. And that's why I love you more, Martha, because you're a real worker. You know, you really care about other people's needs, and you put other people's needs well before your own. And I wish, I wish Mary would take after you, Martha. I wish Mary would kind of get up early in the morning and, and really beat herself with the idea that she's got to perform harder. She's got to achieve more. She's got to be more determined and more perfect if she's really going to be loved by me. And instead, what Jesus does is he flips the script and he says, Martha, Martha, you, you care for many things. You have care of many things. But your sister, she just, she's making a choice for me. She, he, he, he disempowers the idea of perfectionism uh, in the Bible. And uh, we have these two characteristics then. The, we have the aggressive perfectionist, the one who is always the martyr. I'm wondering, some of you guys can relate to this, and maybe you've been in a family where this has been the case. Maybe you've got a mother or an aunt, or maybe even a father who's just like this. They, they always make you feel like you're not doing enough. Or maybe this is you. You can never really sit down. And the great test of this is, can you leave the dirty crocs at the sink so you can have a glass of sherry and read the newspaper? Can you? Good. Well, tomorrow you can test yourself. And if your husband says, darling, why haven't you done the washing up? Then you can tell him. The vicar told me to have a glass of sherry and to read the paper before I did the washing up. So, Forbes, Forbes actually suggests that perfectionism is not a good trait in business. Uh, Forbes is saying that actually you need to be conscious of perfectionists within your team because they'll do one of two things. They'll procrastinate or they'll alienate the team from themselves by suggesting that they're the only person who really cares. And I, I want to I come back to those two themes from a psychological perspective by saying that reluctance to embrace life fully demonstrates one thing and that's that life's not really safe. Okay? So the reluctant perfectionist is someone who believes that life is not really safe. And that normally means that they've experienced the sort of parenting that says, if you make a decision for something and you get it wrong, it's on your own head. You might have even heard that phrase, on your own head be it. On your own head be it. So from a very young age, decisions were rooted with anxiety on the basis that there was someone to please and the potential of making a bad decision was the potential of losing love. So reluctant perfectionists begin from that place. And... The aggressive perfectionists, those who are, are, are doing everything that they possibly can and to the highest order, are those who've been told that actually just a little bit more performance will provide them with love. So these are the, these are the children who've got three A's and a B. And rather than uh, acknowledging that they are three amazing A's and a brilliant B, they've been told that, wow, it's great. Uh, if only you just got that B up by that little bit more. You could have had four A's. Wouldn't that have been really good? Wouldn't that have been really great for you, that you got four A's? Didn't that B just let you down that little bit? Isn't that a bit of a shame? Didn't that just take the polish off for you? Uh, 
they, the aggressive, athe- the aggressive uh, perfectionists are the ones who have who've been told that just a little bit more will provide them with love. If they could just get over the bar, then they'd be loved. I remember my, um, my, sister, my sister's very, very bright indeed, and uh, she um, had multiple kind of scholarships through school, and she was on the front cover of the Telegraph for uh, getting the highest A-level results ever uh, at the time when A-levels were hard. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, and um, I remember, you know, there was great, there was great acclaim in my family for her, and it was fantastic. But and my mum and dad were very good at keeping everything very fair between us. But I remember my grandparents, you know, were so proud, and they sent through a huge check, you know, to bless her for this amazing achievement, and uh, several hundred pounds. And I remember thinking, wow, that's good. And, and, and there was a lot of, you know, if you try hard at school, will. You know, you might get a check like that too. And I was thinking, yeah, that ain't going to happen. Um, when I did get my A-levels, which I tell you weren't that bad, I got a, a check for £10 <laughs> o- o- on a Coots check. Now, if you know Coots, bankers to the Queen, I think the check was actually more expensive or more valuable than the value sum on the check itself. £10. And I did all right. I went to Cambridge. So... Um, so 10 quid says, you know, you know, it's a shame. You haven't quite done it. You haven't quite made it. You know, you've not, you've not done all right. And, and so we have those two, we have this, the root of these two ideas. The reluctant perfectionist who's been told life isn't safe and the aggressive perfectionist who's been told if you just did a little bit more, then you might achieve it. Let's have a look at these three components of perfectionism. So there's... The sociological and cultural influences, including parenting style, which we're going to look at first. Then we've got the cognitive disposition, thinking bias, and emotional style, which we're going to look at second. And then we've got the spiritual slash theological distortion, and also what I call the spiritual battle. So three core elements to this, and I, I hope it's not in too much, too sort of psychological to speak for you. The first one basically is, is how we've experienced life, and how that life has established for us core ideas that have led us to developing ideas around perfectionism. The second one is actually what we mentally have imbibed, how our how our, how our neural stream, how our cognitive awareness distorts the world in which we live to propagate the same ideas. So we have what we call a thinking bias. Cognitive disposition is just our, our disposition of thinking. Our thinking bias is the, the bias that we apply to our experience of the world to self-prove. So it's in every setting, we can self-prove what we believe to be already true. So we're in a setting like this today, and we're thinking, I'm not good enough, and we're looking around, and we're finding everyone who looks slightly better than us in our estimation as proof that actually we're not good enough. We don't look at other people who we think aren't quite as good as us or smartly turned out as us to prove that actually we're okay. So we're biased. We're biased towards certain proofs uh, with our thinking style. And then our emotional style is also significant. That's a bit more of a sort of nuanced idea. Our emotional style is, is, is the kind of type of style that we have, whether we're an external or an internal processor, whether we have what I call an emotionally sensitive personality type, or whether we have a more hardened personality type. So we'll talk a bit about that. And then this idea of the theology. Here's the perfectionist scale to see where you are. Good for 50%, very good for a little bit more than that. Excellent for 100%. The perfectionists are right over here. Uh, and um, you'll notice there's not a scale for perfectionism. It's a silly little cartoon. But of course, the point being that you can never find perfection. 
Okay, you will never find it because 100% is not good enough. 100% is not good enough. And what's really interesting in some of the work that we've done with perfectionists is actually finding out that when they've achieved something to the absolute limit, as in to 100%, having got to 100%, they cannot accept the fact that they've actually achieved perfection. So they downgrade their experience by saying things like, I was just lucky. I was just lucky. Or maybe they made a mistake in my favour. Or maybe they were just being kind that day. Um, So perfectionists who get, this gets quite frustrating if you're not a perfectionist, and and your wife, for example, is, and your wife looks absolutely beautiful. And you say to her, darling, you look so beautiful tonight. What an, you know, you look amazing. What an amazing dress and your hair and everything. It looks fantastic. You're just saying that because you're my husband and you have to. Have you heard that? Have you said that? You're just saying that because you're my husband and you have to. See, that's the perfectionist speaking. That's saying, actually, you're only giving me 100% because you have an obligation to give it. See, perfectionists will never receive the affirmation that they need because they're psychologically programmed not to receive it. The whole point of perfectionism is that the carrot is being moved all the time. You've seen those, those kind of comedy horse and car outfits from the sort of 18th century in London, you know, where they, they had a horse and they had a, a fishing rod and they had a carrot that was kind of dangling in the air. The horse thinks, if I keep walking forward, I'm going to meet this carrot at some point in the future. So they walk around all day watching the carrot, thinking, I'm going to arrive at this carrot. But the carrot is fixed in front of their eyes. It's about six, six meters ahead of them, or six feet ahead of them. They will never achieve the carrot. They will never reach the carrot. Unless someone gets down off the horse, cuts the carrot off his string and puts it in the horse's mouth. You will never achieve the carrot in perfectionism. Now, let's begin um, this section looking at these. We're going to look at these three things in a little bit more detail to help you move forward with these ideas. We're going to start off with what I think is the most important, the sociological and cultural influences in developing uh, um, perfectionistic traits and and particularly parenting style. And this is what, what we call trait induction. There's two little cartoons here on the wall. And um, you'll see a little girl who already has what I'd call um, propensity toward perfection. So she's busy drawing on the wall of her bedroom, and she's not just drawing freehand. She's using a ruler to draw. Now, she's probably around the ages of uh, two or three, and this is the age at which um, children in in kind of developmental stages uh, begin to form new attachments to themselves. They disattach uh, to mum, and they begin to explore the world as as an individual. And, and, And so they're working here, and actually... There is a latent style, if you like, that some people have towards perfectionism. So there's, there's a sense, there's, a, there's an orderliness of the mind which can be fed and empowered or can be disempowered and allowed to be a, a kind of healthy constant. And, and so what's happening with, guilt, with trait induction is, is guilt induction parenting styles. And, and, and guilt induction parenting styles are... are uh, they're an interesting concept. Basically, some parents parent their children by using guilt as a motivator. So what they do is they say things like, Johnny, mummy's feeling very tired today, and you don't want to upset mummy, do you? So Johnny, if you could just play with your toys and just be really quiet for mummy, so mummy can just have a really quiet day, mummy would be really happy. But Johnny, if you make a lot of noise, mummy's going to be very sad. So little Johnny learns very early on that Johnny's behaviour determines the parent's emotional style. 
So actually, little Johnny believes that what Johnny does has grandiose influence. That means grander than it needs to be influence. So mummy is the person that Johnny wants to really please. So as long as mummy uses the terminology of guilt induction by saying we're going to make mummy feel bad, Johnny feels terrible guilt and responsibility at acting in a way that mummy doesn't like. Now when we were interviewing people for the new book, the guilt book, the worst example of this was from a woman who we said, we're talking about guilt induction parenting. She said, oh, that's totally normal, isn't it? Like everyone's mum does that. And I said, um, well, yeah, not, not everyone's mum. She said, oh, my mum used to do that all the time. If I was swinging my legs under the chair or something like that, doing some annoying little thing, they'd, she'd say, you're only doing that because you want mummy to die. <laughs> you're only doing that because you want mummy to die. Oh, yeah, she said that all the time. You're only doing that because you want mummy to die. This one's now about 55. Whole life's been influenced by this idea. So guilt induction parenting tells the child... That actually your behavior, if it's not good enough, has catastrophic consequences for the people that you love. Now most perfectionists have built up an idea that their behavior will have catastrophic consequences for the people that they love or for them. That actually love will be withdrawn. And and very often uh, children who have experienced this sort of parenting style have experienced emotional withdrawal of one kind or another. Now this cannot be an intentional withdrawal, but this can be the overly busy mum or the overly busy dad. The mum or dad who's never really there emotionally. They might be physically there, but maybe they're always on their mobile phone rather than actually engaging with their child. Or maybe they've, they've been busy with you know, another child who, who needs significant care or, or a business problem that needs significant resolution. And so emotional withdrawal says to the child, unless I express myself in a more pleasing way, I won't actually attain to love. And um, that, that whole process um, can lead someone to constantly try and draw love out of others. I, I've got a, a, a guy I was working with who, who has had significant emotional problems as a result of this. He would describe the bar in his family life as being always just this high. It doesn't matter how much you achieve, how higher you jump, it just moves up. You just never quite get over it. And why is that? That's because his parenting, through emotional withdrawal, actually the, attempts to, um, the attempt to attain to love is never really an offer. It's never really, really, really going to be provided. But there's a belief in the self that actually mummy and daddy should love me. So I've just got to work harder and then I will find a realisation of that love. So emotional withdrawal often is a kind of a key uh, factor in the development of this perfectionism. Unsafe environments, probably not relative here, but again, children who've, who've grown up in unsafe environments, where there might be abuse in the family home, where there might be alcohol, uh, where there might be drug use, where there might be chaos or severe mental illness. Um, unsafe environments, again, in children tend to develop perfectionistic traits. So they tend to try and order their world to make their world safe in a world that feels unsafe. Lack of affirmation is a key one. And again, many of you might have experienced this yourselves, particularly if you're from the older generation today. Just because the um, appropriateness of expressions of love in older generations, uh, inter-family love, particularly father to daughter, are often very limited. So they weren't good expressions of, I love you, I really love you, whatever you do. Instead, there's a kind of, often a cold handshake or a well done darling uh, rather than actually I really love you and so that again can, can give us the hope as children that we can elicit real love if we're just a bit better 
Marital conflict, again, that links to the unsafe environment, and I said genetic trait already. Judgmental parenting is what's happening here uh, in this uh, bottom uh, illustration. Now, what's happened here is, this is just an illustration, by the way, um, that the father or the mother has come along and have scrubbed out the son and said, uh, and they've scrubbed out the tree and they've scrubbed out the man and they've said, you know, uh, the, the son isn't orange or this tree is too tall or um, this man isn't a good example of a man. So actually judgmental and critical parenting styles also lead to perfectionism because there's such a strong desire in the child to actually elicit love from the parent and affirmation from the, from the parent. But if the parent's critical, the child works so much harder to just get it right. And you see there, early criticism in children leads to their own frustration and anger. If you look carefully, if you can see the screen, the girl's face has just changed. Uh, there's just a harsh line just above her eye, and she's angry. So in the first slide, she's just content, she's unknowing. But in slide number two, she's reddened, her eyes are open, she's uh, focusing aggressively on the wall, and she's angry. Much, much, perfection, much of perfectionism is rooted in anger and frustration. And actually, it becomes a way of punishing the world for it not providing the love we really hoped for. Now, I will get this right. I will get this right. There's a lovely um, clip. I'm not sure if you've seen the film American Beauty, uh, but it's a fantastic film. And in the film, a lady who is a perfectionist and is struggling with a very chaotic world is trying to sell a house in America. And she starts the day, uh, she looks beautiful, she goes to the mirror in this horrible kind of American condo, and she opens the, she opens the, sort of the bathroom door, and she stands in the mirror, and she says, I will sell this house today. I will sell this house today. I will sell this house today. And then uh, the film forwards through uh, scenes of her. Kind of, she's stripped down to her kind of nighty. She's going around with a hoover. She's polishing everything. She's turning this place around. It looks perfect. And then uh, there's this really interesting sequence where all these very unamused couples come through the door. And she's trying to tell them about the fabulous aspect and the beautiful pool. And they're all saying things that are kind of like, really? That's horrible. I hate this place. And at the end of the day, she kind of closes the blinds and then she just hits herself in the head. And it's... um. <clears throat> it's not a pleasant clip, but it's a beautiful clip of the power of perfectionism and the anger and the frustration that we feel when actually the world doesn't respond to us in the way that we'd hoped. And I wonder today how many of you finish your week, try as hard as you possibly can, do the best that you could possibly do, and yet you still feel unloved, unaffirmed, like you haven't really achieved, that you've let yourself down. And you might not be physically hitting yourself in the head, but that's what perfectionism does. It says, I will sell this house today. And then when you haven't done it, it just feels deeply depressing. It feels deeply hopeless. So, you can see a couple of other traits there. Poor listening, social isolation breeds perfectionism, and perfectionism as an affirmed positive. That's why I've mentioned earlier on in the talk, you know, the danger of saying, actually, perfectionism is good for me. Perfectionism will make me achieve. Perfectionism will make my life somehow orderly and good. Let's move on um, from trait induction that, to this idea of cultural perfection. Now, I, I'm not sure who this lady is. I think it's Cheryl Cole. Am I right? I think so. I can't tell because she looks like so many other celebrities. And the reason I, the reason I say that is because down this side of the, down this side of the uh, cu- cutting from the newspaper are different celebrities who have a face like her. 
And in fact, this, this picture of Cheryl Cole has been broken down into a picture of Cheryl Cole, a picture of, of Kylie, uh, a picture of Kate Moss, a picture, a picture of Angelina, um, and Angelina, whatever her name is, Joe Lee, and Katie Price. Obviously, we're running out of ideas at the end. Um, now, in this picture, what we have is a, di- is, is a classic example of cultural dissection. Actually, you are not a good enough person. You are not a good enough person on your own. Your face is not good enough. So we'll divide your face into the faces of other people who you aspire to be, and then we will demonstrate, actually, what might be slightly better about their nose, or their mouth, or their eyes, or their forehead, or their hair. Isn't it remarkable? You know, we, we, we live in a world which thinks it's okay to dissect a woman, uh, to commoditize a woman, uh, to uh, break a woman down, and to make a woman aspire to something which is unattainable. I mean, I, I, I find it disgusting and abhorrent in a world which is supposed to be emancipated. And, and I want to say to you today, I'm a, you know, I, I call myself a masculine feminist, and um, <laughs> spent a lot of time studying uh, feminist Christology when I was at university, and I, I feel passionate about women's rights issues, and... Um, my comment about uh, Katie Bryce wasn't one based on her looks, it was based on her outlook, uh, which I again think propagates the same myth, actually, that you need a, to be a pornification uh, of womanhood, that actually uh, there's a degradation uh, to uh, the beauty that God has, uh, has, has created latently within you, and actually that, uh, that, that, you know, that we must attain to some model, which I don't even believe is anywhere near perfection, which is the anti-perfection of what it is to be a woman uh, in, in God's eyes. So I, I, I feel that, that you, I'd suggest, and I was speaking at a women's conference recently, I suggested to them that, 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 that you today are living in a world which is hostile towards women, in my view, certainly in this Western world, and that hostility is orientated largely around these ideas of cultural perfection. And it's a new model. And, I, and I'd suggest to you even that, that actually um, Islamic views of women and womanhood clearly have their problem, and I'd suggest that they are a response or a counter-response to some of the ideas around uh, the visualisation of, of women that actually the idea of covering a woman is in a sense is some sort of relief from the idea that actually we can be publicly dissected. So some ideas around that, I know they're not comfortable for us, but there's some ideas around that show the kind of cultural narrative in its full form. Actually, that if, that if, if, if society is going to do this to you, what are you going to do to society? You're going to conform or you're going to hide? And, and I, I, I think the pressure of, of these cultural models on women today are so huge... They are, they are, it's impossible for us to hide from these. My daughter loves Disney. I've, we've tried everything we can to avoid this problem. Um, and uh, it doesn't matter what we do. Uh, we try and hide the books. I don't like the books. I don't like the people in the books. Uh, the plastic models uh, have, have dimensions which would make them unable to attain to life if they were really human. Um, and I don't want my daughter to aspire to be uh, Belle or, or Cinderella or whatever the other ones are called. You know, these are unhelpful models. Uh, and these all, from a very early age, breed the idea of cultural perfection as an attainable to affirmation. And what we see amongst many of our young women today is this idea that actually, if you could become this, you could become ultimately desirable. And therefore, you would attain to what you dream of, which is real love. And actually, real love has nothing to do with this. In fact, I'd say that this is an image of hatred, not an image of love. This is an image of hostility, not an image of welcome. 
And, and, and so I want to argue that you are all, in whatever way, in whatever age and stage of life you're experiencing, you are all experiencing something of this within your own society right now. That you have to attain to this. And it doesn't matter if you're an older person here today. You might think, well, this is a young person's game. But I can tell you, even amongst older people today, there's this idea of, actually, are you, do you look good for your age? How are your knees? How's it going? Are you getting out and about? Oh, you're not doing so well. Oh, poor you. Well, I am doing really well, thanks. I go to bridge every week, twice a week, actually, and I walk quite far as well. If only you could do what I can do. You know, the same things, the same arguments. Cultural perfection. This idea that if only you could achieve it, then you'd be truly loved. Glamour magazine. Uh, Not a magazine I can tell you I read very often. But it says expectations of physical perfection are at an all-time high. Oddly, as women have got more culturally liberated, we've, often, we've also got crazier about our bodies. Americans, mostly women, spent more than $13 billion on plastic surgery in 2007. 10 million U.S. girls have an eating disorder. 10 million U.S. girls have an eating disorder. It's just a, just, that's, a, that's, a, that's a confession from Glamour magazine about what Glamour magazine is doing to the world. It's amazing, isn't it? As if, because we're telling you about it, we're not doing it. You know, if we take, oh, aren't we morally virtuous that we're telling you about what's actually going on? Uh, you know, what a terrible thing. And if you turn to page 15, you can see our new diet plan and how you could look just like this woman too. And actually, if you turn to the very end, you can find places that will sort you out with some Botox. So you can actually feed this industry as well if you'd like to, um, because actually there's a, there's a way that we're going to kick back through this. So, cultural models are significant for women, particularly for women, but increasingly for men. Sadly, we're seeing more and more guys struggling with eating disorders. Amazingly, you think it's a women's disease. And actually, there's lots of young guys today struggling with eating disorders, and there's lots of guys in the gym misusing drugs for the sake of their their bodies, trying to create a body, again, which is projected on them by a culture that says, you need to be like this if you're going to be loved. And actually, I believe in a God that says, I love you just as you are. I love you just as you are. You're precious to me just as I made you. You're precious, and there's nothing you could do that, that would make me love you any more than I do right now. That's what love is. It certainly ain't nothing like this. Let's look at um, the next idea, which is the idea of, of perfectionism as a safety behavior. Now, safety behavior is a term that we use in the psychological world to describe a behavior that makes the world safer for you. Now, I'd just, just describe a scenario to you for a moment. Imagine that uh, you couldn't swim, and uh, so we gave you a life jacket, and we threw you in the swimming pool. Is there a swimming pool here? Oh, there's a lake? There's a lake. We'll throw you in the lake. Okay, now we've got you in the lake, and you're in the lake, and you're basically swimming around. But are you really swimming? You're not sure. You're wearing a life jacket. Are you really swimming? No, okay. You weren't sure, though, for a minute, which is quite, actually quite helpful. So you're in, you're in the lake and you're wearing a life jacket and you're swimming around. But have you learned to swim? No, you haven't learned to swim. The thing is, if I take off your life jacket, you will drown. And many people develop what we call safety behaviours on the same basis. They are thrown into the pond of life, yet they find a life jacket that they can wear which they believe will keep them afloat. The trouble is they've never really learned to swim. The only way to learn to swim is to learn to drown. Think about it. The only way to learn to swim is to learn to drown. You have to get into the pool and be at risk of drowning if you're ever going to know how to swim. That first time that you step away from the side, you have to risk drowning 
in order that you could learn that actually there are things that you can do to keep yourself afloat that are good and healthy and are yours. And so many children develop what we call safety behaviours in a world which is unsafe. And if a safe world is a loving and affirming world, perfectionism is the life jacket. Perfectionism says, if I achieve this, I will be loved. So this is a cycle of perfectionism as a safety behaviour. We start with the concept of perfectionism. It roots in the fear of failure. If I fail, if I make the wrong choice, or if I don't do enough, then I will be unloved. Then there's procrastination. I need to wait around to make sure I make the right decision, or I need to prep my right decision before I make it. And following procrastination is the beginning of action, and there's a lots of self-criticism early on in this. And these are people who are saying, I'm probably going to get this wrong, I'm probably going to mess it up, I'm probably not going to achieve it, I'm probably going to, I'm probably going to be rejected because I'm doing this. That increases the anxiety, people feel huge levels of anxiety in task, they feel huge levels of anxiety um, you know, as they view other people, and often they're, they're, they are affirmation hungry. So they'll often be saying, how do you think I do, how do you think I do, how do you think I do, how do you think I did? I, I train lots of young speakers, and um, I can tell you the first thing they'll ask you after they, after they preach is, how do you think I did? And I'll say, how do you think you did? Do you think you said what, what you were here to say? Yeah, I think so. But what did you think? I'm like going, well, it doesn't matter what I think right now. It's important that you delivered as you hoped that you would deliver. Lots of anxiety, and obviously perfectionism can lead to come serious depressive conditions. The, the cycle is self-fulfilling in that you lose confidence straight away. Because your, self, your internal critic is constantly saying, you're not doing this well enough. It doesn't matter if a thousand people told you were great. If one person said, I thought it was all right, you would think about that one thing. You would think, oh, someone said it was just all right. A thousand people said it was brilliant, but one person said it was just all right. I speak at lots of conferences around the country, and sometimes we have you know, thousands of people come to, to, to hear us speak. And sometimes I will get loads and loads of nice emails saying, I found that really helpful, or that really helped me, that really changed my life experience, that was really great. Sometimes we get a really horrible email from someone saying, you know what, well, I think you're really weird, and like, this is really critical, you know, I, I felt that you were being really critical, or I felt like you were psychologizing away my faith, and you know, I think, you know, like, I, I just don't want to, I just want to claim whatever it says in the Bible, and I don't want to think about any of the stuff you're talking about, uh, you know, you get, you get these emails, and, and, and I can tell you, 10 years ago, that would have really troubled me, I would have thought, oh no, oh no, now I just think, I really don't care, I just don't care. <laughs> I, I just really, I don't give a monkeys. I, in my view, people are people. Some people are going to hate you. Some people are going to love you. That's it. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. The two things I care about is, does God love me? That's my first number one I wake up with any more, every morning. And the second one is, do my wife and kids love me? At the end of the day, I know, I've got it written on my phone. And I, can, I won't show it to you, but it's written on here in notes. It says to me, in my notes page, for whenever I'm feeling anxious, it says to me, Will, at the end of the day, you're loved by God and you're loved by family. You could always go to the seaside and cook, cook breakfasts and sell inflatable plastic toys. That's what it says on here. I'm not, I'm not, you think I'm joking? I'm not kidding you. That's what it says on here. Because every time I become concerned with the love of man, when I become concerned with being loved by other people, or when I become a persona who projects himself on the stage, I, I, I can, I'm in danger of falling into the idea that actually I need to be affirmed by people. And then I become anxious because I think, I'm not good enough. And then I just remind myself, that's not what life's all about. I don't care. I can always go and cook, cook breakfast on the sea and sell inflatable plastic toys with the people I love. That, that's it. That's it. And so we lose confidence if we let other people's affirmation fulfill us. 
And then we have a greater fear of failure. And then we need to use the now habit. I need to achieve this now. I need to be affirmed now. I need to be perfect now to get away from our anxiety. So we try even harder. And then we try harder. And then we experience the same cycle all over again. We use perfectionism as a tool to make life safe. But you know what? Perfectionism will never make our lives safe. It will steal our lives. It will rob us of our joy. It will steal us of our opportunity. And it will never allow us to be good enough. Because, friends, that's what we are. That's what we're ever called to be. It was to be good enough. And then it's good enough in whose estimation? And my estimation, my measurement for good enough is good enough for God. And the Bible says to me that God loved me just when I was way back when. And actually, I'm totally good enough for him. So I don't need to do anything to make him happier. And that, that trumps every one of my parental perceptions. That trumps every experience I've had of being told, oh, you just need to do a bit, try a bit harder or do a bit better. It trumps the love that I receive from my family. Because ultimately, it's a love which is just enduring. It's eternal. And it's a love that just overwhelms me every day. At the end of the day, you can be in any situation at any time in your life, in any place, just to know I'm loved. I'm loved. I might as well get a big t-shirt saying, I am loved. That would be a good thing. Apart from it might breed perfectionism in other people because they might want a better t-shirt than me, which wouldn't <laughs> should be no good. I, w- I want Lou just to come up and just to, just to share a few notes with us. Um, we've got about uh, 10 minutes left now on our time. So Lou's just going to share sort of five minutes and then I'm going I'm to come into land with a couple of final points on this before we have a little break. Thank you. Um, well, there's quite a lot of bombing of stuff there, isn't there? I'm sure you're all trying to kind of take on board a lot of the things that Will said. And it's the first time I'm hearing this talk as well, so it's quite interesting for me to see what's coming out. Um, the thing that um, just kind of I feel like I want to say is um, the first step for us out of perfectionism is to accept that maybe we are struggling with it. And um, I'm, I'm sure that as the day goes on, you just might want to accept just sorry just reflect on that and just think do I need to take that first step to accept that maybe this is something that I am struggling with that maybe I've been battling this for years and then um, what I was uh, reflecting on when it comes to this subject for me is that becoming a mum which is something that happened to me five years ago nearly five years ago almost was like lighting a fire that said be a perfectionist and um, this is something that I've really had to work through over the last five years because what I found was that naturally you, your instinct is to want the very best for your children, isn't it? You want to do the best for them. You want to be the best you can be. You want to um, buy everything that's safe. And I think I got sucked into all that marketing that says, you know, you need this specific car seat that will protect your child and it costs double the price of every car seat on the market and because you want to do and be the best. And um, what I found was that I totally didn't know anything about parenting. I didn't know anything about babies. I don't think I even knew how to put on a nappy when my daughter was born. So I was turning to all these books that told me what to do um, and trying to follow the instructions a bit like a user, a user manual. And, um, and I used to really beat myself up whenever things went wrong and my baby was sort of, you know, not sleeping through the night and all kinds of stuff was going on that I, I hoped wasn't happening. And... Um, and I gradually began to see that actually if I was going to carry on trying to be the perfect mum, I was going to be way stressed (laughs) and and really struggle in myself um, in terms of enjoying this. Um, And I've come to this kind of slow realisation over five years that for me, um, the perfect mum is an imperfect mum. And actually, um, 
I kind of feel like that's not just relevant to parenthood. I feel like that's relevant for any stage that we're in before God, that to be the perfect form of who um, we are, if you like, is to be imperfect and is to accept that we are imperfect and that actually that's, in a way, that's what makes us need God, isn't it? And realizing that actually, um, you know, for me as a mum, I just can't do without God. I often feel like I can't get through a day um, without getting to about five o'clock and wanting to just lie down on my kitchen floor and collapse because I don't know why toddlers exhaust me so much, but they do. But, you know, I think in ourselves being able to accept that actually I'm going to enjoy the things that I do. I'm going to be able to enjoy the person that I am and be the best me that I can be if I can let go of those pressures that say I must always be reaching this bar and everyone around me and everything around me must always be there. And I think I really resonate with what uh, Will says actually about we don't want to raise perfectionists either. We don't want to raise children. I certainly don't want my children to feel that they have to be perfect um, or to strive for perfection in everything that they are and everything that they do. And what am I modeling? (laughs) Am I going to be someone who models to my family and to my uh, friends and those people that maybe you work with or that you spend time with that we we all need to be somewhere where we just can't get? And um, thinking about that as well has helped me on this journey of saying, actually, I want to try and step away from always trying to be the perfect mum and just try and be the me that God's made me to be with all the faults and flaws that I have. Thanks, Lou. That's really helpful. Um, just going to have a just quick buzz through a couple of a Christian reference point. Again, this is I know that I'm aware that some folk in the room don't have a Christian faith, but I think this is quite helpful um, just to have a thought through a couple of these verses. I just want to point out um, in the Bible there's this uh, there's this reference: "Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect." From Matthew five uh, eight, um, and there's a, a sort of reaffirmation of this in one Peter one fifteen. But as he who has called you is holy, so also be holy in all of your conduct. And Titus 2.12, training us to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Now, um, there is a danger, of course, uh, that the biblical narrative seems to affirm the idea that you can be perfect. I just, I just point out that actually... Um, uh, the, uh, the the word for perfect here um, in in the uh, in the Greek sorry just before just stay on the, the first slide the, the the word before um, the word perfect in the Greek here is also the word for complete um, be complete um, and uh, teleos is the idea of, of completion not just um, not just perfection and I, I think the writer of Matthew here and particularly this this reference that Jesus has made is is talking about finding your completion in God not finding perfection in yourself and that's why it's framed be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect and since be complete in who I am now Christians uh, don't believe that when you become a Christian then you need to start doing everything right of course we believe that you belong to Christ you, you, you believe in Christ and then you're transformed like Christ. But um, there is a myth in the Christian church that once you become a Christian, you'll never make a mistake ever again. And it's a myth, but it's a, it's a propagated myth, often from the front. And Christians are terrible at this kind of faux humility. Like, oh, I sometimes get things wrong. Sometimes I make mistakes. Like I drove a bit recklessly the other day. You know, they always play things down. Like, and then, and then, but then real sinners need to leave the church. You know, people who make real mistakes, they need to go. You know, and th- this is just so pernicious and unhelpful. Um, just to be clear, 
You know, Christians don't believe that uh, you sort of join some moral club of perfectionists when you become a Christian. Christians believe in your flaw, in your failure, and in the constant reaffirmed grace of Jesus Christ. And I love the story of Peter, um, disciple of Jesus, you know, who, who, who went on to set up the church in Jerusalem. And my, my church is named after him. And, and even despite all his knowledge and experience with Jesus, you know, he, he did some, made some kind of incredible mistakes. Um, including denying that Jesus was, you know, was with him several times, uh, three times, and he was reinstated with incredible grace. So I just want to point out, you know, very briefly, that the church has... Um, let's pop onto this, uh, the next slide about Atelios. Uh, so this is the, uh, this idea that actually we're finding completion, not perfection, uh, in, in, in Christ. And um, this is, a, this is a, a sculpture by a friend of mine called Charlie Mackesy, and um, it's uh, the prodigal son. What I love about it is that the father here is, represents God, and he is, he is strong and welcoming, but the son is just complete, a completely limp bag of bones. I was modelling for Charlie the other day. Uh, he's doing a new one of these for the, um, for the Met in New York. And I was, I was doing the, the hand modelling for the father. It was just the hand. Um, but, you know, when, when I was standing there and I was, I was, I was observing the kind of the, 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 the plaster, it was just amazing the limpness of, of the sun. And this idea that actually perfection has nothing to do with the striving of the son or the daughter. It has everything to do with the strength and the love of the father. Um, now, just a quick step through recovery. Some recovery questions. How are we going to move on from here? Well, the first one is perception. What do I really think about perfectionism? What is your perception from what you've learned this morning about perfectionism? What do you really think about it? If you're still thinking it's probably good for you, then you really are not going to find a recovery. Has your perception changed generally about the danger, uh, the strength, the power of perfectionism in your life? Has your perception changed? Secondly, what is the purpose of your perfectionism? What am I really trying to achieve through perfectionism? So try and think about, try and explore within yourself the scope of your perfectionism. In every setting, what am I trying to do here? Is it attainable? Okay, is it actually attainable? So tomorrow, when you're, if you're making lunch, and, and, you know, is it attainable what you're trying to do? Is it Heston Blumenthal? <laughs> or, or is it your local pub? What are you trying to achieve? And then try and, try and achieve accordingly. Think about your, your goals in advance. What am I trying to do? And actually, what am I trying to elicit from doing this activity, which I can actually elicit by just asking, darling, I feel a bit insecure today. Just tell me you love me. I love you. Great. Lunch is going to be a bit ropey today. Okay. Yeah, great. Why don't we go out for lunch? Yeah? Let's, just, let's be real about what we're trying to actually achieve. And let's call ourselves out. Darling, today I tried to make a really lovely lunch, so I'd be affirmed by everyone that I've actually got a place in this family. And they'll all go, you're so ridiculous, we love you, you know, we just want you to be here, of course you've got a place in this family. But don't let it become a habit to seek relief. Projection. What am I feeling inside but pushing outside? So what am I feeling inside here by, um, I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling insecure about myself, now I'm going to make the whole family feel a bit insecure. By sort of saying, I'm the only one in this family who really cares about this house being clean. Really? Oh, that's because you're so perfect, mum. Oh, that's what I was looking for. Okay? So what am I projecting? What am I feeling inside that I'm trying to push outside? Be honest with yourself about what you're trying to do. Lots of perfectionism is quite manipulative. And we have to put up our hands and say, I'm quite good at this. You know, I can manipulate people through this. 
And actually, that's not a good thing. And then finally, performance. Who am I seeking to please through seeking perfection? Who am I actually seeking to please? And I'll say to you Christians in the house, God is not pleased by your perfectionism. God is not pleased by your perfectionism. It's not something that he likes. It's not like he's going, good for you, you're really holy. He doesn't, like, he doesn't love it. It's, you know, of course, the Christian life is about discipleship, and it's about seeking God's glory in all things, but not for your glory. You know, he's not looking for perfection in you. He's looking for love in you. And that is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And some of you, if you loved your neighbor as yourself, you'd be going around with a big hammer, knocking on their door, and then whacking them in the face with that. So he's asking you to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And I want to ask yourself, will your neighbor be pleased with the love that you're showing to them? So who am I seeking to please through seeking perfection? And here are the steps to change as I come in the last minute. Self-aware, stress reduction, making new appraisals, asking myself new questions about what I'm doing, modifying my behavior, not trying so hard, uh, compassionate self-talk, you're looking for love in this, but you don't need to because you are loved. You are good enough. You are a good enough mother. You are a good enough friend. You are a good enough daughter. Affirming yourself through compassionate self-talk. Prayer. Just saying, God, I'm feeling vulnerable. Do you love me as I am or should I try harder? See what he says. And then tolerate discomfort. This is really, really key. If you are trying to escape the discomfort that you feel then you will always use the same safety behaviours to stay afloat in the pond. It does feel uncomfortable when you're making these changes. It, it will feel unnatural to you. And there will be a desire to jump back to seeking perfection in everything uh, all the time. But as you tolerate discomfort and as you stay with it, it will become less and less powerful. It's, a, it's like breaking an addiction. You can't give up smoking unless you're willing to tolerate the pain of the desire to smoke. You have to go through a period of pain before you don't want the cigarettes anymore. That's a reality. All of this stuff we're talking about today, it does need some willpower. But take all the willpower you've been using to be a perfectionist and turn it all into being a recovering perfectionist. But don't do it well, do it badly. <laughs> this is just my final slide. It's just a, just a visual slide. The idea of perfection is so imperfect. That's the key thing. Walk away with this today. The idea... Of perfection is so imperfect. It cannot help you. It will not help you. It's not designed to help you. It's designed to condemn you. And I just believe today, we just want to release you from that condemnation and set you on a stand for a better day. A day that says, I'm, I'm a good enough. I'm a good enough person. I'm a good enough child of God. I'm a good enough woman. I'm a good enough friend. I'm just here to be loved by God and to love those around him with his love. So I'm just going to pray a short prayer and we're going to have a very quick break. Is that okay? Yes. Oh, sorry, a question. I'm supposed to have a question time in this right now, but I've run out of time. No, no, no. Time it's time bet. Timing. Oh, my, it's my timing. My, time, my timing. It's a great example. I don't care. But, I mean, I don't want to upset anyone at the back. Right. We've got 10 minutes. So, uh, yeah, till, yeah, we've got, yes, that's right, 35 past. Emiko, amazing. It was good enough. It was good enough. You're amazing. Okay. <laughs>